0: You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org.
1: to one.
2: If we could place ourselves there on that first Good Friday, we'd probably ask this question. How could this man, beaten and bruised, a crown of thorns pressed down into his head, possibly be a king? You know, it's only been five days since he had come into Jerusalem with people putting palm branches down in front of him and their cloaks. And they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel. But now these cries of adoration have given way to shouts, angry shouts of anger. Crucify him. You know, when you think of the word king, what comes to mind are words like power, in control, in might, authority. And so, honestly, when you look at Jesus on this day, He looks nothing like a king. And those who had come to believe that Jesus was the promised king who was going to finally deliver Israel from the oppression of Rome, their hopes were quickly evaporating as Jesus now was walking toward the cross. In fact, if you look at the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, going back to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, to this moment now as he approaches Golgotha, which is a place of execution. You'd have to admit that he looks nothing like a conquering king.
3: It started in the garden, not in the morning sun, with birds singing and the flowers showing off their splendor, but in the dark. Jesus in anguish, praying to his Father in heaven, hoping there was any other way to accomplish God's mission. The dirt below, turning to mud from the tears falling from the Son of God's face an eerie glow in the distance casting long dark shadows from those coming to arrest the one claiming to be the Messiah. As the crowd draws near, Jesus stands to greet them. One of the followers draws a sword, slicing the ear of a man. Jesus cries out, no more of this, and fuses the ear back in place with a healing hand the gratitude shown for this miracle? To bind these hands, the hands that healed the blind, wiped away tears and held a hand of a once sleeping girl. The son of man, led away like a criminal, spit upon, mocked and shoved along to face the jealous religious leaders. Using their power and position, These men force him to his death, face to face, a human king ruling Judea versus a God king ruling heaven. One king in it for power, glory, and show, the other for grace, love, and forgiveness. crown made of pure gold, donned with jewels and precious stones, made for a human king. The king of the Jews, whose head was beaten and bloodied, prepared for a crown of thorns. A king led in a processional to be seated on a royal throne. Pilate, trying to wash the guilt from his hands, as this king is led away hopefully, to never be seen again.
2: You know, when you contrast earthly kings with their power to Jesus, in him we see things you don't see in a king, things you don't expect to see, vulnerability, humility, suffering, submission, And in this case, if we're honest, weakness. This does not look like a king. In fact, pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once observed that a king who dies on the cross must be a king of a rather strange kingdom. Something very different, something very, very unexpected. Well, as Jesus is led from Pilate, he's already been beaten badly. He's bleeding, he's bruised made to carry his own cross to which they will soon nail him and they will hoist him up and they will drop the cross down and he will die as a criminal among criminals. It'd be awful to look at the cross, but if you dared to gaze at the cross, you would see a couple things unusual about the cross of Jesus. The first is this. It was common in Roman executions on the cross that they would take something called a certificate of debt, and it would be the actual crimes committed, and they would post it, nail it on the cross where the man was suffering, so that anybody walking by would know these are the charges, these are the things that make this person deserve this. This is the guilt right here. But on Jesus' cross, there is no such certificate. Pilate, when he examined him, said repeatedly, I find no guilt in this man. He is innocent of any of these charges. And so you would see Jesus suffering here as a criminal, yet no charges were there against him. But if you look closely, you'd see another thing rather unusual. At the top of the cross, there was a sign. And the sign said, This is the king of the Jews. Pilate himself Had the sign put there. And actually, much to the dismay of the religious leaders, they went to him and said, No, change that. Say that he said he was the king of the Jews, or he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I've written what I've written, it's going to stand. Which begins to tell us something about what was going on in Pilate's heart. Here's the most powerful man in the nation of Israel with all the authority. He examines Jesus, he finds no guilt. And he actually has a sign put there saying, this is the king of the Jews. And I know I'm speculating a little bit, but I believe something began to move in Pilate's heart that he would do that. When he had examined Jesus, he asked, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, it's as you say. But my kingdom is not of this world. And from that moment on, this powerful man did everything he could to get Jesus released. He pleaded with the people. He offered Barabbas instead, but they were insistent. Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate finally relents, releases him to be scourged, which is beaten, beaten more, and then to be taken away to Golgotha where they will put him to death. And in front of the crowd, he gets a basin of water and he washes his hand and he said, I'm declaring my innocent innocence. I'm not guilty of this man's blood, you are. And they lead Jesus away. Now at the cross, as Jesus is nailed to it and hung there, there were quite a few people, quite a crowd of people around. We know from the historical accounts that at least some of the women who had followed Jesus were there, although we, we were told that they were off at a distance. Understandable. It'd be hard to witness this up close. We know that they cu- crucified people on a major road leading into Jerusalem so that everyone going by would witness this and they would have the fear of Rome in them. You cross Rome, this is what happens to you. Curious onlookers, but the, probably the two most important groups of people that were there for our purposes today are people that represented the two kingdoms that colluded together to come against Jesus the kingdom of religion and the kingdom of Rome. And in their mind, this was their moment. They were there celebrating, I'm sure. Oh, here's your king. This is a king. He's got a kingdom. I don't see his kingdom. Where is his kingdom? Has he suffered and died? But if we look closely, if we dare lean in and listen closely, I believe we can begin to see the kingdom of Jesus, his kingdom begin to work already in the lives of two men representing these two kingdoms. And we're going to take some time this afternoon to listen to them, to listen to their stories as we begin to see the kingdom of Jesus at work. The first one we're gonna hear from is a Roman soldier.
0: 873, that's the number of executions I've carried out. Sure, you might think of a monster for overseeing that many deaths, but quite the contrary. I'm a highly trained and highly skilled soldier. I'm one of the most trusted men that our esteemed Pontius Pilate calls on to carry out the most difficult of orders. You don't call that person a monster. You call them a centurion. It's never personal. I simply receive my orders, take the criminals, Jews, activists, whomever, to Golgotha, have my men string them up, and the rest, as they say, is history. It's not always the cross. We have other methods. But for the worst of the worst, It's the cross. It's a horrible way to die. One, two, sometimes even three days, the person hangs there, clinging to life with every breath, suffering, just waiting for the pain and agony to end. I must admit, the first few deaths were difficult. I kept my head down, did my work, and never made eye contact with the guilty. Like I said, it's never personal. But after a while, it turns into a job. Some people are farmers, some are craftsmen, some people are politicians or philosophers. I'm a centurion. 873 executions. It was the 874th that changed everything. It started out very early in the morning. Number 874 was in front of Pilate, beaten beyond recognition, bound with ropes. My men had really did a number on him. Then Pilate brings out this lunatic, a murderer, and he asked the crowd which of the two men he should release. I watched as number 874 remained silent. But the murderer was on his knees, begging and pleading for mercy from the crowd. while 874, he just stood there, silent. I mean, this was his chance. He does nothing. And then, the murderer was released. Never seen such a thing. So I had my men take the prisoner to the praetorium to ready him for his execution. You know, my men can be quite zealous with their preparations. Number 874 was already beaten badly. But my men had held back a few ideas. They stripped him and shoved his arms into a scarlet robe. And they began to beat him over the head again and again, mocking him and spitting on him. Apparently, this prisoner had said that he was some sort of king. And it had even been heard that he said he was the son of God. And so my men formed this crown of thorns and, and jammed it on his head, continuing to beat him and mock him and spit on him. But 874, he never cried for help. He never pleaded with them to stop. He acted as if he deserved it. So then the prisoner carrying his own cross made his way to the place of the skull. Nails were used instead of ropes, which I thought was excessive, but orders are orders. When my men had finished nailing him to the cross, they raised the cross up and dropped it into the hole. That thud sound signifies the beginning of the end. It was nine in the morning, right on schedule. After a few hours had passed, something strange happened. It started to get dark. No, I thought a storm was coming, but it wasn't. I tried my best to pay it no attention. And then I heard 874 say something. Something I had never heard before. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Who is his father? And who needs forgiveness? The Jewish leaders? Pilate? Me? Me? 873 executions I thought I had heard everything It's usually begging for mercy Making excuses Screaming about their innocence Cursing us and God himself Never have I heard anyone Utter anything about forgiveness I slowly looked up at the prisoner And her eyes met I couldn't look away who is this man? How can he say these things? His eyes were not sad or angry or accusatory. They're compassionate. It just doesn't make any sense. When 874 gave up his last breath, the sky became like night, but it was only three in the afternoon. Suddenly the earth began to shake more and more violently people started running away, the noise, the confusion, when the quake finally ended, I looked at the prisoner, lifeless on the cross, He was dead. Forgive them, he said. Uncontrollably, I said out loud, surely he was the son of God. I don't call that prisoner 874 anymore. I call him Jesus. His name was... No. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And surely he is the Son of God.
2: I think if we're familiar with this story, it's easy to fail to see how significant this is. You know, I don't know if he did 874 executions or 8,074, but here's a hardened man who just became numb doing execution after execution. So he thought he had seen everything, heard everything. And then he hears those three words What did he say? Father, forgive them. And it became personal, he said, for him. He had to lean into this one. He had to pay attention. What is going on here? No screaming, no yelling, no cursing, no blaming. Instead, Father, forgive them. You know, just hours before, when they took him from Pilate to bring him to Golgotha, he acknowledged his man, he and his man put a a robe on him, a scarlet robe, the crown of thorns pressed down. And they actually said, the words coming from his lips then were mocking him as they kneeled down before Jesus and said, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! And they had a rod and they struck him. And then he drags them off to the cross and does what his job, he'd done it a million times and he does it again. And now he finds different words coming from his lip as he observes the manner in which Jesus died. In the words, these three words, Father, forgive them. This is Rome now. This is the Roman Empire brought to its knees in this one man who says, Surely this was the Son of God. Where's the power? There's another man, a second man, who is at the cross, someone who was familiar with Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee, high-ranking Pharisee. And a group of them I'm sure were at the cross as I said mocking and delighting and celebrating that Jesus was there, but this man was not there to gloat or to celebrate. This Pharisee had come to Jesus once before. He had heard about Jesus. He was curious. He had to see for himself. But because he was a big shot Pharisee, he didn't want to be seen going to Jesus. He waited till it was dark, and he snuck there to have a conversation with Jesus because he had to hear for himself. This man's name, Nicodemus. I was honored.
4: Even among the Pharisees, I always had the answers. Perhaps I was born an old grizzled man with a mind full of scriptures. I was always serious about the scriptures. I was devoted, I was certain. I was the one with the answers, not the questions. But then things started to change and this churning created a flurry inside me like I had never known before. I began to question myself, my understanding, my religion, everything that I had known cannot save yourself the thought inside my head didn't say I as if I were speaking to myself but it spoke from outside of me directed at me and sternly I considered that that I was the best among the Pharisees but if I really opened my eyes wide I could see that we ourselves did not live up to the standards to which we tried to hold others I tried to ignore this confusion devoting myself to a more diligent prayer life to to reading and studying the scriptures this feeling it would not go away about the same time i began to wrestle with hidden questions there was a man gaining much attention among the people his name was jesus i was going to temple and heard a group of people talking about miracles i was quite interested so i paused to listen they were telling of this man jesus the home of a common fisherman. They claimed that he had healed a man's mother there. And then others began to show up at the home, the sick, the elderly, the blind, even those with leprosy, and he healed every one of them. At first, I dismissed these as a, as fables, as a lie. But the story spread, and more stories were being told of the healing. My fellow Pharisees and I observed Jesus carefully and <laughs> from a distance and it became clear that we could no longer dismiss these miracles as, as rumors they were true he did heal people but it wasn't the miracles that, that concerned us it was what he taught he claimed to be the son of God blasphemous and punishable by death and that is what we had planned How can we trap this lunatic and kill him? One day I was at temple and witnessed Jesus behaving strangely. He started overturning tables, coins from the money changers scattered across the ground, animals being driven away, people yelling and running in the temple. He was behaving like a lunatic. Maybe that's what he really is. He called people robbers and said that this was his house. Again, blasphemy. I wanted to point my finger at him and condemn him, and yet, I also wanted to draw near to him and ask him a hundred questions. I knew I had to meet this man. I couldn't just walk up to him in front of everyone. My reputation, my status, even my life were at risk. So I waited until dark and went out. feeling ridiculous as I hid behind carts and cattles, creeping low like a common criminal. Jesus was sitting outside. It was almost as if he had been waiting for me. And I began to ask Jesus about his miracles, about his power and authority, about his claims to be the Son of God. I asked him about our ability to to follow the law, about the righteousness of the Pharisees, patiently, kindly and with great authority responded to them all. He began to tell me about being born again and the kingdom of God. I was confused, so I became sarcastic and asked him, should I indeed enter my mother's womb a second time? (laughs) He laughed and continued his message with power. His words were trustworthy, and for the first time in my life, I felt like a child, empty, trusting, just waiting for him to show me what I did not know. He asked me to believe in him as the son of God. And he told me that he had not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Now now his words, his words were answers, but his very person was the answer. They've killed him, Jesus. They crucified him like a blasphemous lunatic. Pharisees stood by, spitting on him, insulting him. He did not deserve this. I saw his body limp, contorted on that Roman torture device. I knew they were just going to throw away his body like a piece of trash, and I could not let that happen. A friend of mine from Arimathea, Joseph and I, planned together to have a proper burial for Jesus. I had at my home a large bag of expensive spices, enough for a royal burial. Despite his death, I I, I felt in my soul that he was who he said he was. He was royal beyond all royalty. Joseph and I together prepared and wrapped his body and then placed him in Joseph's own tomb. And this time, I did not care who saw me.
2: Like a good Pharisee, Nicodemus was absolutely certain he had all the answers about God, which we're all tempted to. I'm sure in his heart he... He wanted so desperately to just ignore him, just to join the rest of them judging Jesus. But something in him drew him to Jesus. He had to find out. And so he has this visit. It's recorded in John chapter 3. It's one of our favorite passages in the Gospels. It's the chapter where we get the verses, "...for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved." Those words were spoken from Jesus to this man, to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And so here we see the kingdom of religion now confronted with Jesus. And Nicodemus actually pops up one more time in the Gospels, just four chapters later in the Gospel of John. The Pharisees are now conspiring to have Jesus arrested and put on trial. And Nicodemus speaks up. Remember, he came to him initially under the cover of darkness. Now we see a little more boldness. And he says this to them. Is it really not in our law that we should first hear a man before we judge him? And now, fast forward here at the cross. No longer embarrassed to be there. No longer hiding. No longer in secrecy. He's present when Jesus dies. And he joins Joseph of Arimathea. Can you picture Nicodemus at the cross, this Pharisee, this member of the ruling council of the religion, helping to bring Jesus' body down off of the cross and gathering him in his arms, tenderly, lovingly, carrying him the short distance to the tomb. And we're told that he had 75 pounds of spices, very expensive, that he brought with him to prepare him. I picture Nicodemus with Joseph carefully laying his body down and taking the grave clothes and wrapping his body and using the spices before the stone will be rolled to shut Jesus into darkness. There's no words recorded of Nicodemus, but I think his actions tell us everything we need to know. No longer a skeptic, no longer a doubter, no longer opposed no longer fearful. These two men that we've heard from, the Roman centurion and a leader of the Pharisees representing the two kingdoms that came against Jesus, now find themselves bowing to Jesus. Who's a king? The king of kings. So those three words that Jesus uttered from the cross I think are the most profound words ever spoken ever heard by a human being and perhaps it is true that the centurion was the very first one to hear those words we know the gospel writers wrote them down but most of the crowd was far, a little distance from Jesus but the centurion was right there maybe he was the one that communicated these words when the gospel stories were being written Father forgive them I believe with all my heart that the most Significant words ever spoken. If this story is true, and I believe they are, that this was God himself on the cross, were those three words, Father, forgive them. And I think most of all, they reveal to us clearly who God is. What is the nature of God? What is God like? I think more than all the volumes of theology ever written about God, or all the sermons ever preached about God, can be summed up in those three words. Father, forgive them. Try to see the story with fresh eyes or hear the story with fresh ears today. Those words spoken by the man in utter agony to the ones that were causing his utter agony. In that moment, his concern was not for himself, His thoughts were not about himself. His thoughts were about the ones that had put him there. His thoughts were about the ones who were harming him. His care was for the ones who were harming him. And in fact, I would say his thoughts had to be thoughts of love and compassion and concern and expressing forgiveness. So what else could the cross mean? But this, that God is love, that God is not angry with us, God does not hold us with contempt. That God is love in his very essence, he's love. If you've ever been hurt, even a little bit by someone, your first reaction, my first reaction, is not, well, forgive you. I have to work toward that. And yet again, as he hung on the cross and all that pain and all the mocking that had been taking place over the last 12 hours and all the striking and the blows and the insults, all that heaped on him and he remained silent. And when he's finally in this moment and he has almost no breath left in his lungs, what does he say? He prays. And what does he pray? God, forgive them. This is what the cross means. And if you want to know what God is like, it's Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say to us today. Jesus is what God thinks about us today. Jesus is what God feels about us today. And I don't care how bad you think you are, how much bad you've done. If Jesus could speak from the cross to his father about the ones that put him here asking for forgiveness and what do you think he thinks about each of us? Those are not just ancient words for then. These are words for now, for today. Today. And so I just wanted you to think for a moment. Is this how you think about God? Is this this who God is to you? Loving, forgiving, compassionate, even when you're at your worst? Because this is what the story of the cross reveals to us. This last year I read this phrase, it stuck with me. I think about it constantly, especially as we've come into the Good Friday and Easter season, that the cross did not change God's mind about us. It was to change our minds about God. Let me say that again. The cross did not change God's mind about us because he already loved us. Remember, he sent his son into the world because he loved us. For God so loved the world, Jesus came. So before Jesus came, he loved us. So the cross was not to change his mind about us. But as we gaze at the cross, as we gaze at the person of Jesus there, and hear his words, Father, forgive him, it's to change our minds about who God is. And my hope and prayer is that if you don't know this God, you don't know this Jesus, that you'll begin a journey today to know that you are deeply loved. Father, forgive them. Well, just moments, um, well, maybe a half a day before this event, Jesus was gathered with his disciples in the upper room. They were celebrating Passover together. And they had no idea what was coming because they thought that Jesus was going to conquer Pilate and Caesar and he was going to overthrow the governments. That's the kind of king they were looking for. And so they had no idea what was coming. And the words that he shared with them would only have meaning a couple days later, really three or four days later. If, you, uh, if you're streaming with us right now, we want to encourage you to join us in communion. We're going to take communion in just a few moments, so you can grab some crackers or juice or something at home. Hopefully, everyone here, you've received something on your way in. But can you picture Jesus now, a day before his crucifixion, with his disciples, knowing what's coming? He knew. He knew. He had told them, but they never quite understood what was coming. So he took some bread and he took, he took the wine and he said to them, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you for forgiveness of sins. But they didn't understand it. They took the bread from him. They took the cup. It's what we now call the Lord's Supper or communion. In a few moments, we're going to do what he asked us to do. He said, do this to remember me. What did he want us to remember? When he said, Father, forgive them, and the centurion was asking, who is the them? He wondered if it was himself. And of course it was. And those words have been declared for 2,000 years. Every time this story is told, Father, forgive them, and it includes Craig and Terry and Bonnie, and Jeff, and all of you, every single one of us. And Jesus thought it was important enough that we would do this often, he said, to remember. Because so much in this life conspires to bring shame and guilt and condemnation, even our religion. The religion of the Pharisees brought nothing but guilt and shame. It was, they were in a straitjacket. They were slaves to all the rules and regulations, and God was never happy with them. And some of us have grown up with that understanding of God. I did. And the idea that God was love, I could just never get that until I gaze at the cross and I see someone in so much agony caring for the ones who put him there. That's how much God loves us. And so in the song that you're going to hear now, I would encourage you just to close your eyes and open up your heart and mind to reflect on the beauty of Jesus to be ravished by his love for you. And then I'll come back and lead us in communion together.
5: Oh, the perfect Son of God In know is in the sin they're walking in the dirt with you and me, He knows what living is. He's acquainted with our grief, Man of sorrows and Son of suffering, Blood and tears. How can it be? There's a God. Your cross, my freedom, your stripes, my healing. All praise, King Jesus. Glory to God in heaven. Your blood still speaking, your love still reaching. All praise, King Jesus. Glory to God forever. Your cross. my healing, all oh, praise, King Jesus, Glory to God in heaven, your blood still speaking, your
2: In the same way that Jesus stretched out his hands to his disciples, to his friends, and offered the bread and the cup, he is here with us now, stretching out his now nail-pierced hands to us, saying, I love you and I want you to remember this. I want you to remember and to embrace the full extent of my love for you. And so will you with me now take the bread which represents his body broken for us on that cross and to do this to remember. In the same way as he sat around the table with his disciples knowing the sacrifice that was coming and had the cup in his hand, I believed he looked at them and longed so deeply for them to know how they were loved. If you could use your imagination now to picture Jesus here looking at you with that same longing, the depth of his love for you, you'll never know fully. But he stretches his hands out now with this cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood for forgiveness of sins let's take this together to remember Jesus you are here with us now and you are loving everyone in every seat in this auditorium everyone at home wherever they're listening or watching the service and I'll have only one prayer prayer And it's for me as well that this story that is so familiar to us would be fresh today, that it would cut deep into our hearts where we need to feel loved. We need to feel your embrace. We need to know that Father, forgive them was not just words written down, but they were the cry of your heart, the desire of your heart for every single one. That we would would bask in your love. We would be ravished by your love today. In your name, amen. You know, I imagine as darkness fell that very first Good Friday that there were two very different things going on. The first was a party that the kings of this world were having. Maybe it brought the Romans and the religious leaders together because this is what they had wanted. They got their way. They conquered. They won. Jesus is now in a tomb. Game over. End of story. Somewhere else on the other part of town, there's another experience that's not so good. People that had put all their hopes in Jesus, had followed him, loved him, felt loved by him, have to be so confused, disillusioned, depressed, worried, anxious. As the sun sets that first Good Friday, this is what's going on. But we know it's not the end of the story. In fact, um, I have an active imagination, and I picture the centurion and Nicodemus on the third day when the word began to spread that Jesus was not in the tomb and that he was alive, that they had a foot race to see for themselves. I mean, what else are you going to do if you hear that news? So it wasn't the end of the story. And for 2,000 years now, the party shifted, right? So we're going to invite you to come back to a party that we're going to host. It's called Easter. So tomorrow... At uh, 6 o'clock, I believe, here, and on Sunday, we have three services. Please join us for the party to celebrate the risen King of Kings because he conquered death, he conquered the grave, he conquered sin, he's given us forever, he's restored us in a relationship with God. That's something we're celebrating, so we hope you'll come back and celebrate with us. Now, as we leave today, just as you came in, we're going to ask if you would leave quietly because I think some may want to sit for a few minutes and live in the beauty of this story. Maybe there's something going on in your heart. And so if you would just kindly, you can leave right away. You can stay for a while. You can stay till midnight. We're going to do another service. Stay with us. But we want God to continue whatever seeds were planted in your hearts today for that work to continue. So if you'd like to sit, please sit. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great evening. And we'll see you back here for Easter Saturday or Sunday.
0: You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and, of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.